Church History for Dummies starts back tonight, 6 p.m. in the Education Building, room 706. If you feel like a dummy and you don't know church history, then come on out. It's a class for dummies taught by a dummy, yours truly, resident dummy. So I hope you'll join us. There's child care as well. So back to the dummy thing, confession. I'm a complete idiot, a dummy. I really am. I've told you this before, so it should come as no surprise to you, especially if you know me. And coming to grips with this truth over the past several years, with the fact that I am an idiot, has really freed me to be, well, an idiot. And one evidence of how much of an idiot I am is this. I am allergic to helplessness. I'm allergic to dependency. I'm allergic to prayer. I'm allergic to God's wisdom. Oh, I like to think that I'm helpless and dependent and desperately need God's grace, but it only takes doing a little inventory of the past few days or the past few hours of my life to see that although I like to think that I am helpless, many times I live like I can handle and do life on my own without Jesus' help. There's a word for that. Idiot. And so it's true. In one sense, I really do believe that I am helpless and need God. Of course I believe that. I'd be an idiot to not believe that. But how many times do I let my beliefs and my theology really drive what I do? I really like to think that I'm helpless and desperate for Jesus, but the way I go about my days many times, I actually prove that my beliefs and my theology have not traveled from my brain down into my heart. And that's why I say I am a complete idiot because I am allergic to helplessness sometimes. I'm allergic to dependency and allergic to prayer and allergic to God's wisdom. And we'll see someone just like me in our passage today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 22. King Ahab and I are alike. And maybe you're like us. Maybe you're an idiot too. If so, welcome to the club. But the good news of the gospel is that there's hope for people like us. Hope for idiots and dummies. There's hope for people who feel like God must be fed up with them by now. Is that you? Are you here today and you're thinking, man, surely God just must be fed up with me by now. He must be sick of me now. He must see me coming and thinking, that guy again? Is that you today? Do you feel like God's just fed up with you? Are you weary? Are you tired of yourself, just sick of yourself? And how you keep giving in to the same old sins? Are you weary and exhausted? Come to Jesus today and find rest. Just come and collapse on Jesus. All you got to do is open the empty hands of faith and say, okay, I'll believe it. You say, come unto me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just come and open the hands and say, okay, I don't have to do anything. Just receive Jesus. You don't have to do anything. Just receive from him this morning. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to do anything except pry these cold, dead, hard fingers loose and say, okay, I will receive your gift. 
So in 1 Kings 22, we'll see Ahab experience his third encounter with the word of God. In chapter 20, if you recall, there was an unnamed prophet who acted out a parable by getting slashed with a sword. Do you remember him? He brought the word of the Lord to King Ahab. Then in chapter 21, Elijah brought the word of the Lord to Ahab after he was involved, even if it was indirectly, in the killing of Naboth. And so in today's passage... With his third encounter with the word of God, we see Ahab's refusal and outright repudiation of God's word. Even though he repented and humbled himself, which we saw last week, Ahab will once again prove to be spectacularly unfaithful. Actually, King Ahab will prove himself to be spectacularly idiotic. Ahab will gather prophets around him who are a part of his entourage and they will tell him what he wants to hear. He's recruited a bunch of yes-men prophets who tell him what he wants to hear and he keeps them on the payroll. What someone should have told King Ahab is this. Don't be an idiot. And that's our big idea today. Some of you are already offended. If you're telling me not to be an idiot, then that implies that maybe I am. Maybe you are. I know I am. Don't be an idiot. It's like that scene in the NBC comedy, The Office, where the boss, Michael Scott, has a conversation with one of his salesmen, Dwight Schrute, if you know the show. Michael says to Dwight, what is the most inspiring thing I ever said to you? And Dwight responds, don't be an idiot. Change my life. And then in a side interview, in one of these talking heads, Dwight says, whenever I'm about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. (laughs) If only it were that simple. Sometimes we approach the Bible this way. I will not do that idiotic thing that they did. I will not do that idiotic thing that the disciples did, or Ahab. And then we find ourselves doing that thing or something similar. And we might feel that way about King Ahab today. I will not do that idiotic thing that King Ahab did. But what we'll see is that we often do what King Ahab will do today. So in order to recalibrate our hearts, we want to repeat this phrase to ourselves as much as we can. Don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. That's what idiots and dummies need to hear. Don't be an idiot and stiff-arm Jesus. Rather, welcome him because he welcomes you. And so the reason that 1 Kings 22 is in the Bible is to remind us to not be idiots who stiff-arm God and his word. So 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? 
And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of Yahweh of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Am I missing something? Oh, okay. God's word is funny, I guess. (laughs) And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. I'm sorry, I thought there was something funny. I thought... Here we go. So Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, in the south, has a barbecue with King Ahab of Israel in the north. Previously, if you recall, King Ahab had been fighting with Syria back in chapter 20, but there's now been three years of peace. And so over a few cheeseburgers, Ahab says to everyone at the block party, Hey, don't y'all know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and not Syria? We've got the title. It's in our name. We're the legal owners. And yet we're just sitting here doing nothing about it. And then King Ahab asks King Jehoshaphat if he'll help him take back Ramoth Gilead from the Syrians. And Jehoshaphat replies in verse 4, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. In Hebrew, that means, I got your back, bro. But notice what Jehoshaphat says in verse 5. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of Yahweh. Not a bad move at all, is it? Seek the Lord. Seek his wisdom. Let's pray about it. In fact, we could preach a whole sermon on this verse alone. One of my repeated refrains to my kids as they tell me things that concern them, or maybe they've lost a toy, is, have you prayed about it? I want to beat it into my children's heads that they should pray about everything. Everything. And they're learning that. Pray about everything. It doesn't matter how mundane something is. Jesus wants you to talk to him about it. As Alec Motier said, he loves us to talk to him. Amazing. And that's what Jehoshaphat suggests here. Let's pray about it. Let's seek Yahweh. Let's seek his wisdom. In fact, he uses the Hebrew word derash here, which means to seek with care. So this isn't just a flippant seeking, a a flippant prayer. This isn't a quick, flippant, Lord help me, and then you just go about your day and never talk to Jesus again. This is, let's get serious. Let's seek God's wisdom. Let's be intentional. Let's plan for it. Let's seek his face. It's a reminder to us that God has opened the door of his office and invited us in. It's a reminder that God is able and he is ready and willing to do extraordinary and exceptional things for people who are in desperate need for people who seek him. So what Jehoshaphat is proposing here, it's really just faith, isn't it? It's just faith. Jehoshaphat is saying, let's turn to the Lord in his all-sufficiency for all of our needs and let's hear and receive what he has to say to us. It's so simple, right? Let's turn to the Lord. But it's so hard to do, isn't it? 
So Ahab takes the advice and he gathers together 400 prophets and he asks them if he should go fight to get Ramoth Gilead back from the Syrians. And the 400 prophets who are on the payroll of King Ahab, they reply, go for it, boss. The Lord will give it to you. You got this. You'll win. But then King Jehoshaphat interrupts and asks if there's another prophet of the Lord that they could seek. But why does he say this? I mean, 400 prophets agreed. It was unanimous. Do you know how hard it is to get 400 pastors to agree on something? Not even your pastoral staff agrees about everything. 400 prophets are unanimous. So why ask, is there somebody else, another prophet? Here's what I think is happening. I think King Jehoshaphat smells something fishy here. Perhaps it's because who the prophet said would help Ahab in battle. Notice in verse 5 and 7 that Jehoshaphat uses the name Yahweh in English, all capital letters, Lord. And in verse 6, the prophets use the word Adonai, which means Lord. In English, it's lowercase there. So when you see Lord in all capitals in the Old Testament, the English translators are telling you that in the Hebrew language, this is God's very unique personal covenant name, Yahweh. And when you see Lord in the lowercase with lowercase letters, that's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. So the 400 prophets use the lowercase Lord, and they don't use the name Yahweh. So I think Jehoshaphat hears Adonai, master, instead of Yahweh, and he's a little concerned. Seems fishy. Now, of course, both of these names are used for the Lord in the Old Testament, but since the nation of Israel has been worshiping the false god Baal, perhaps Jehoshaphat is cautious. Something's fishy. Strange things are afoot at the Circle K in Samaria. And so Ahab comes clean and tells Jehoshaphat that there's one more prophet, a man named Micaiah. But Ahab doesn't like him because he never prophesies anything good about him. Ahab doesn't like what Micaiah says because it often goes against what Ahab wants. He doesn't like God's word because it goes against what he wants and what he feels and what he thinks. Sadly, Ahab could not see God's grace here, even though it was slapping him in the face. Notice that Ahab says in verse 8, there is yet one man. You can chalk that up to God's grace. This is God's goodness to Ahab. The Lord has left Ahab with one man who will speak the brutal truth of God's word, and yet Ahab would not have it. He's stiff-arming the Lord. How sad. God's grace is slapping Ahab in the face to get his attention, but Ahab doesn't get it. God just keeps showering him with grace. This teaches us about God. What does God have for us when we have squandered his grace? What does God have for people who keep sinning and sinning and doing the same thing over and over again and they think, God must be sick of me? What does God have for people who keep squandering His grace? More grace. More and more grace. We wouldn't create a God like that, would we? 
but he's got more grace. And it's here for Ahab. I've left you one prophet who will speak my word to you. And you don't even see it. Look at verse 9. Then Ahab, king of Israel, summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says Yahweh, with these you shall push the Assyrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead in triumph. Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. Ahab then sends one of his officers to fetch the prophet Micaiah. In the meantime, Ahab and Jehoshaphat are sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor at the entrance to the gate, uh, at the entrance gate to the city of Samaria. And the 400 prophets of Ahab are all prophesying. And it's like a church service outdoors near a gate. And then a prophet named Zedekiah brings some life to this party. He reaches into his backpack and he pulls out some iron horns that he has made in his shop. I don't think he made them on the spot. I think he brought them with him. And if he brought them with him, it feels like his prophecy is a little planned, if you ask me. But the others, they love it. The visual learners especially perk up and sit up straight. Zedekiah takes the horns and sticks them on his head and he begins running around poking people. And then he tells Ahab, this is what it's going to be like. You're going to be like a bull and you're going to go gore the Syrians to death when you go to war. Now, this was very typical for a prophet. They often acted out their prophecies, as we saw in chapter 20, with the man who had somebody gash him with the sword. They use visual aids often, like uh, iron horns or Play-Doh or flannel graphs. And so Zedekiah acts out this prophecy, and he tells Ahab, he's going to go up and gore Syria like an ox. And this whole scene seems true and real and what you would expect You have the prophet acting out his parable with a prop. He uses the standard, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. Now he's using God's covenant name. And then 400 prophets all agree and all the people said amen. So it seems like standard Old Testament prophet business. But as we'll see, you can use God's word any way that you want to. You can make the Bible say anything you want to. You can make the Bible sing any song you want to. You can make it fit your life, your thoughts, your feelings, your ideas, your presuppositions. That's what's happening here. We're singing it in our culture today. Christians saying, I know God's word says this about marriage. I know God's word says this about gender. I know God's word says this about the sanctity of human life, but see, that's what's happening here. Ahab has handpicked 400 prophets who always tell him what he wants to hear. 400 prophets who agree with Ahab when Ahab says something like, I know God's word says this, but I feel this. I think this. Ahab has 400 yes men who tell him what he wants to hear. These 400 prophets remind us of a hard truth that many people find hard to swallow, and it's this. 
We can't be trusted with the scriptures all by ourselves. We simply cannot be trusted with the Bible all by ourselves. We'll talk more about this next week. That's why we have a class on church history right now. Because we want to look at those men and women who came before us and see how they dealt with heresy and how they dealt with error and how they dealt with problems within culture that were then seeping into the church. See, we need the community of church history. And so when it comes to God's word, we need outside help. Like here, the local church community, we need the local church community and we need the community throughout church history. And so come back tonight at 6 p.m. and see how the church dealt with the heresy of modalism. Modalism is kind of like Mrs. Doubtfire, if you remember that movie with Robin Williams. Come back tonight and I'll explain why. It's still around, by the way. Modalism is still around, alive and well. And that's why we need church history. But even more than that, we desperately need the Spirit of God. Oh, how desperately we need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit when we pick up the Bible. As Puritan John Owen said, without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. What John Owen is saying is that apart from the Holy Spirit, we would never be able to understand God's Word. That's humbling, isn't it? Think about that. We are desperately dependent on the Spirit of God in order to be able to accurately understand the Bible. You can read the Bible until you're blue in the face and it won't do you a lick of good if the Holy Spirit does not help you. And without Him, we might as well burn our Bibles because they would do us no good. We are that desperate. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. Ralph Davis says this about how much we need the Spirit and how we fail to call on Him. He said, I was reading Richard Pratt's fine book. He gave us stories. He was discussing what precious little attention we give to the work of the Holy Spirit in the task of interpreting Scripture. Of course, some articles and brief pieces discuss this, but Dr. Pratt stated that, to his knowledge, the most recent work of any size on this matter was written by John Owen over 300 years ago. I looked up the end note for the documentation. There, Pratt cites Owen, and John Owen's words smacked me between the eyes. And now Ralph Davis quotes John Owen. He says, For a man solemnly to undertake the interpretation of any portion of Scripture without invocation of God, to be taught and instructed by his Spirit, is a high provocation of him. Nor shall I expect the discovery of truth from anyone who thus proudly engages in work so much above his ability. And Davis continues, we are guilty of arrogance, not merely neglect when we fail to beg for the Spirit's help in the study of Scripture. We may have such arrogance even when we seem to be seeking the Spirit's aid. I think of those times when in a light-headed tokenism we utter our slap-happy prayer that the Lord would guide and direct us as we study this passage. One shudders to think how flippant we are but how many more times we neglect any overt seeking of the Spirit's help. I keep this quote taped up on a bookcase in my office so that I see it every time I work on my sermons. And there are still many times when I forget. When I start working away, I'm like, I haven't haven't asked the Holy Spirit to help me. 
Let me tell you, the secret to my preaching is begging the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people ask me, I don't know how you do it. How did you get the gospel out of that? I was clueless on Monday morning, and I just started begging the Holy Spirit. Help me. That's it. I beg. I know how to beg. The secret to my preaching. I'm going to write a preaching book one day called Begging. And you open it up, chapter one, beg, end of book. <laughs> Just beg. We are guilty of arrogance, not merely neglect, when we fail to beg for the Spirit's help. Wow. Arrogance. I bet you didn't come to church today expecting the pastor to call you an arrogant Bible reader or an idiot. But I think Owen and Davis and Pratt are correct. We are incredibly desperate when we open up God's word. And we are arrogant idiots when we attempt to do anything apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. That's so simple. And yet, it's not so easy to do, is it? If John Owen were here today, I think he'd tell us, don't be an idiot. But let me give you some good news today, okay? The Holy Spirit loves desperate people. He loves it when we beg. He really does. He loves people who embrace their weakness and admit that they really can do nothing without him. The Holy Spirit loves needy people who pick up their Bibles and say, this won't do me a lick of good if you don't help me. I'm desperate, Lord. Help. Help. I'm begging you. Needy people get his attention. Isn't that great? Needy people get God's attention. So let's start making room in our ministries for prayer, for begging. Let's start creating space in our ministries and activities and meetings for all of us to cry out, Jesus, please help me with blank. So in your Sunday school classes, in your small groups, and in your meetings, take some time out occasionally and go around the room and have everyone just pray this very simple prayer, Jesus, please help me with blank. Teach the kids in your classes to do this. Do this at youth group. Do this at home with your family. Do this in your meetings and ministries. Imagine what kind of church culture we would create if we were always stopping and asking Jesus for help. Man, what would the kids look like in this church who graduate and go off to college and their default reaction to any situation that they face at college is, i got to ask Jesus to help me. What would your family look like if you began inquiring of the Lord like King Jehoshaphat suggests here? You know what? We would be making disciple-making disciples. That's what... That's our tagline here at Grace. And one way that we can do that is by encouraging one another to ask Jesus for help. We will be discipling one another in prayer by stopping occasionally and saying to one another, don't be an idiot. We need more of that here at Grace. Where we have long conversations about our problems and then someone finally chimes in and says, hey, let's not be idiots We've been rambling on and on about this issue, but we haven't stopped to ask Jesus for help. Let's do that now. And then we can continue the conversation. That would change us. What if we stopped occasionally in the middle of our ministries and said, hey, let's not be idiots. We need Jesus. Let's ask him for help. How sweet it would be to have someone say, don't be an idiot. 
why not stop and do that right now? In the middle of this sermon, we need Jesus, don't we? So let me pray real quick, okay? Jesus, we admit that we're desperate and we're idiots and dummies. And if you don't help us, Lord, we're going to mess it up. So would you help us in this church to make disciple-making disciples for your glory? Because if you don't help us, we're not going to be able to do it. Thank you that you will in your name. Amen. Sometimes you have to stop in the middle of a sermon and pray. That's how desperate you are. Listen, this is what I know about Jesus. There is nothing that Jesus would love more than to answer our cries for help. That's why Yahweh gave the prophet Micaiah to King Ahab. Jesus loves to answer prayers that say, we can't do this without you. This is for your glory. Please help us. If you don't intervene, we'll mess it up. We're idiots, Jesus, and we need your wisdom. Jesus loves to answer those kinds of prayers. He sees those kinds of prayers coming his way, and he gets excited. He gets excited. Father, I get to help another dummy today. This is a great day. When an idiot asks Jesus for wisdom, oh, it's time to get down to business. That's when Jesus says, okay, I can work with this right here. Now you're ready. Now we're going to get something done up in here. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is attracted to weakness. He loves when his people beg for help. He loves to help idiots who ask for help. You know what? We should change our name to Idiot Baptist Church. That would get people talking, right? We probably need elder approval and a congregational vote for that. Listen, in contrast to all that you have ever heard about what churches should be like, and everybody has an idea, we want to be a weak church full of dummies here at Grace. Why? Because churches that truly succeed are the ones that know they are desperate and weak and they want no success apart from dependence on the Spirit of God. Jesus takes idiots and dummies and starts his church. Jesus is like, I'm going to plant a church. I need a bunch of idiots. Who does that? Jesus does. Because then he gets all the glory. We don't get nothing. It's not about us. It's all about him. Listen, we don't want to succeed here at Grace because we have all the strategies and because we've read all the latest leadership books. We want to succeed here because we are desperately dependent on the Spirit of God. I don't want us to succeed any other way. Just pure, unadulterated need. Just finding ourselves in pickle after pickle after pickle and having to cry out to Jesus just being idiots who are dependent on God's wisdom. And then he gets all the glory. Listen, if everything was safe and we never needed Jesus here at Grace, is that really success? Think about that. If we can do ministry here based on our own wisdom, putting our collective brains together, reading leadership books, if we can do ministry here without needing the Holy Spirit, is that really kingdom of God success? If we can reach a place where we're never in a pickle and never desperate for the Holy Spirit, is that really success? I don't think so. Therefore, I don't mind when we find ourselves in a pickle. 
I don't mind when we find ourselves in a financial pickle. You know why? It humbles us. It humbles me. It keeps us needy, and it knocks the swagger out of our step. I just spit then. I need the swagger knocked out of my step. Churches need the swagger knocked out of their step, and they need to be humbled. We only want success here that is birthed out of dependence on the Holy Spirit that's birthed out of prayer. That's it. So that means that whatever ministry you are a part of, make prayer a priority. Make begging a priority. Stop occasionally and say, you know, we haven't begged God yet. We should do that. Do what Jehoshaphat suggests here. Inquire first for the word of the Lord. So in your Sunday school classes and in your small groups and at your board meetings, make prayer and admitting your helplessness a priority. And come back tonight at 5.30 before the church history class and before the evening service and pray with us. Every Sunday evening at 5.30, we beg Jesus to help us. So come on out and join us. Let's make time to inquire of the Lord. Make time for begging. Stop and beg Jesus for what you need and then sit back and watch Jesus do what he does. Listen, y'all, following Jesus is exciting. You find yourself in pickle after pickle after pickle, in need after need after need, and then Jesus shows up and does stuff in his way and in his time all for his glory. So admitting that you are an idiot is the door to God's grace. Why are we resisting it? Admitting that you are needy and that you're an idiot is is the door to God's grace coming into your life. I mean, who knew that admitting that you're an idiot could be so much fun? And if we are idiots, then we need wisdom, don't we? So where do we find it? Answer in Jesus Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. We preach the cross. We preach Christ crucified for sinners. We preach Jesus as the wisdom of God for idiots like us. I mean, what do foolish people who chase after idols need to hear every single week? Christ crucified. The gospel over and over again. What do people who keep doing the same sins over and over again need? They need the gospel. People who feel like failures and they're tired and exhausted and they're just sick of themselves. What do they need? They need the gospel. In fact, who did Paul write these words to in 1 Corinthians? The Corinthian church. Do you know what they were like? There was fighting slandering, cliques, incest, pride. And people say they want to be a New Testament church. Not that one. And what does Paul say to this seriously messed up church? He says, we preach Christ crucified. He says it a second time. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is what every church needs every single week, whether they are healthy or seriously messed up. So as Paul says in Colossians 2, 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden for us in Christ. If that's true, and it is, then where should our focus be? Should our focus be on us 
and on our thoughts or on Jesus? If we idiots need wisdom, where do we need to look? To Jesus, the source of all of God's treasures of wisdom. And to miss out on this, you don't have to say, I don't need God's wisdom. I'm not an idiot. That's not how you miss out on all of this. Here's how you miss out of all of the good things that God has for you. You only have to be okay with the way you are. You only have to say, I'm okay. Here's how we miss out on this grace. If we say, you know what? I'm okay with the way things are. Things are pretty good here. You only have to be okay with the way you are. That's how you miss out on God's wisdom. Here's the good news for complete idiots like us. All of the love and all of the adoration and all of the affection and all of the delight that God has for his son Jesus, he now showers upon us and lavishes all of that goodness on us. All of it on you, Christian. Receive it this morning. You don't have to do anything. Just open your hands and say, okay, I'll take that gift. You don't have to say, but yesterday I, no, no, don't hear. Just open your hand and say, okay, I'll take it. Don't have to do anything. It's a gift. You just take it. No matter how bad we flub this, Jesus is going to love us until we finally get it. He will love us until we are finally and fully conformed to his image. Because he's in the business of saving us from ourselves. And that's good news. Jesus is loving us until we get it. And he will love you until you finally get it. He'll love you all the way to the end of your life. Because you still won't get it when you take your last breath. And he'll love you all the way through eternity. Because even after 10,000 years, we still won't get it, will we? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loved you and me all the way to the cross and he keeps loving us even though we are slow to learn and we just stumble our way through life. Just falling down, getting back up again, thinking we're doing all right and falling down again. So don't be discouraged today because the wisest man in all the world loves you. He loved you all the way to the cross and that's why we preach Christ crucified the wisdom of God. Idiots need wisdom and Jesus is that wisdom and he offers himself without restriction to all who come. Will you come? Don't be an idiot and ignore Jesus. Come and be free. All of Jesus for all of your need today, whatever it is, it's free. You just receive it. Maybe you're thinking, but I keep messing up. I keep going back to the same sins time and time again. I'm an idiot. Surely God must be fed up with me by now. No, he's not. He came for people like you. He came for people like us. Idiots and dummies who keep turning away from him. You know what? You can start over again today, right now. Start over again with God. Forget the things that are behind. You can start over right now, today. Would you like that? A fresh start? God is ready. He's willing. He's like, come on. You want a fresh start? You get it today. No strings attached. Just come to me. Just open the empty hands of faith and receive all of Jesus for all of your need. What are you waiting for? 
He'll have you. He'll have you, believe it or not. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm just so overwhelmed at your goodness to people like us. We don't deserve any of this. And that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. We just can't earn it. Jesus, I just want to earn your love. It's so hard for me to receive. Help me to receive today. Help my brothers and sisters receive today. Thank you for being so good to us and so, so kind to us. If there's any success here, we point to you and say it's all for your glory. We know we didn't do anything. In fact, Jesus will be surprised that we don't mess things up and we'll give you all glory. Thank you for loving us all the way to the cross and loving us all the way home. In your name we pray, amen.